This episode of Navarra Live is brought to you by listeners like you. Thank you. Good evening and welcome to Navarra Live. I'm Ash Sarka and I'm joined tonight by Helena, aka No Justice MTG. In my head, that stands for Marjorie Taylor Green. Is that the case? <laughs> no, it stands for Magic the Gathering. I started off as a video game streamer, but here we are talking about talking about politics every day. So, <laughs> Magic Good the Gathering you. is a gateway drug which will inevitably lead to socialism. Coming up on tonight's show, the director of the Al-Shifa Hospital in Gaza has been arrested. The Dutch far right have claimed a surprising election victory. And Gary Lineker is once again at the centre of a media storm, this time over Palestine. First story. The four-day pause to Israel's bombardment of Gaza is due to start tomorrow morning. Brokered by Qatar, a spokesperson for the country's foreign ministry today gave some details of how it would work. Uh, The beginning of the pause will be 7 a.m. Friday, the 24th of November. And it will last, of course, as agreed, for four uh, days. And uh, the first uh, patch of civilians to, uh, to be released from Gaza will be around 4 p.m. of the same day. They will be 13 in number, all women and uh, children. And uh, those hostages who are from the same families will be uh, put together within the same patch. Obviously, every day will include a number of, uh, of civilians as agreed to total 50 within the four uh, days. Uh, the communications that took place and the meetings that took place all through uh, yesterday went on until early morning uh, today with uh, the Egyptians and uh, the parties of the conflict present here in uh, in Doha. Uh, the meetings went uh, very well and in a positive uh, environment. And uh, the results, of course, was the uh, implementation plan uh, of uh, of the agreement, which we have always said needed to be something that is concrete and, and uh, very uh, ready to uh, create a safe uh, environment for the release of of the uh, the hostages. Asked about the prospects of a permanent ceasefire, the spokesperson said this: "What we have felt is that they are committed to this highly." Our aim is to reach this agreement and to pave the way for more pauses that can put an end to this war that everyone is suffering from. Hopefully, the end will be very soon, and we need to build this and that in order to reach a lasting, permanent ceasefire. The truce may begin tomorrow, but today hostilities have continued. Israeli troops have now arrested the director of the Al-Shifa hospital in northern Gaza. According to Israel, Mohammed Abu Salmiya has been taken for questioning by the Shin Bet Internal Security Agency. The arrest came after they discovered, quote, evidence showing that Shifa Hospital under his direct management served as a Hamas command and control center. The Palestinian Health Authority says another doctor and two nurses were also taken into Israeli custody. The medics were reportedly detained while traveling in a World Health Organization convoy, evacuating patients from the Al-Shifa Hospital to the south of the Strip. Speaking to CNN, Israeli military spokesperson Peter Lerner said this about the arrest. He was in a constant state of denial, saying it doesn't happen. How could a general manager of the hospital not know about the extent of the tunnel system? We need to see exactly what he can share with us about his knowledge. A constant state of denial about the tunnels. A bit like Israel then, who actually helped build them. That's a fact we've repeatedly reported, but which was confirmed on CNN earlier this week by former Israeli Prime Minister Ehud Barak. 
The detention of Dr. Abu Salmiya and his colleagues marks another potential breach of international law by Israel. Medical personnel are protected under international humanitarian law, though they can lose this protection if they commit, quote, an act harmful to the enemy. And we shouldn't be fooled by the words arrest or detention here. Abu Salmiya has been taken into custody by an aggressive military force and handed to Israel's security services. There is unlikely to be a time limit to how long he can be held, nor will his location be necessarily revealed. And the IDF has been repeatedly accused of abuse during the interrogation of detainees. The convoy that Abu Salmiya was travelling in prior to his arrest was one of the many slowly evacuating the Al-Shifa hospital. The Palestinian Red Crescent Society has now evacuated 190 wounded and sick people, their companions and a number of medical teams from Al-Shifa Hospital. They have been moved to hospitals in the southern part of the Strip, but many patients and medical staff still remain in Al-Shifa. The evacuation has been slow and careful, with Palestinian Red Crescent reporting this. The evacuation process lasted for almost 20 hours as the convoy was obstructed and subjected to careful inspection while passing through the checkpoint that separates northern and southern Gaza, hence putting the lives of wounded and sick people in danger. Conducting humanitarian operations in Gaza is, however, not safe, even for international aid agencies. Today, a spokesperson for the Red Cross told Al Jazeera that members of its staff were shot at while delivering humanitarian support in northern Gaza. And a Politico article has now revealed this. The US has been sending Israel information about the locations of aid groups in Gaza, ostensibly to prevent the IDF from striking them. And yet, the targeting of humanitarian facilities where civilians are sheltering or receiving what little aid there is continues with almost uncanny accuracy. The Politico article reports this. Soon after Hamas attacked Israel on October 7th, aid groups in Gaza sent their coordinates to the United Nations, using a long-standing arrangement called the Humanitarian Notification System to prevent incidental attacks on civilians. HNS was used by Israel during the 2014 war with Hamas in Gaza. It is just one of several such systems that exist in conflict zones around the world. But last month, as aerial bombardments ratcheted up in Gaza, aid groups searched for additional communication channels to share their GPS coordinates and information about their work, including calling senior US officials and members of Congress, hoping that Washington would help protect their workers, two of the people familiar with the matter said. However, as Washington engaged with the Israeli government about the locations of aid groups' offices, guest houses, and medical facilities, attacks on aid workers continued. Helena, looking at the airstrikes in the context of the director of the Al-Shifa hospital being arrested, is Israel trying to signal its impunity? Like, is the point of this to communicate that all civilian infrastructure and civilians are fair game and international organizations aren't capable of protecting them? I think for long parts of this conflict, we have seen the desire of people in the Israeli state and people who are trying to facilitate the pro-Israeli narrative around this conflict have continually tried to undermine international organizations and the things they say and what they do. Ever since the UN has been calling for a ceasefire, Antonio Guterres has been pretty... Um, it's been pretty clear 
they would like there to be a ceasefire moving forward. There has been constant rhetoric under trying to undermine the, the role that the UN is playing in trying to mediate some of this conflict, or at least trying to mediate the hostilities that's continuing in this conflict. And Israel has been very unhappy with this. There's plenty of times that we've seen, I don't know if anybody else remembers these things, where people trying to say, that, well, the UN is in support of Hamas, or the WHO is in support of Hamas, or the Red Cross is in support of Hamas, or in league with Hamas. These are things you continually hear from people on the pro-Israel side, someone whose name I won't mention tweeted something essentially of that manner that, that everybody else is in league with Hamas, parroting her Hamas narrative. I think it was Yair Lapid himself who even said, if you get unba a, a balanced coverage, that favours Hamas, right, in terms of what these international organisations are saying. And so continuing this way in which that they have not only attacked the sites that belong to international organizations and arresting people like the director of Al-Shifa from a convoy being run by an international organization. I was also reading in Al Jazeera today that they obstructed a WHO convoy leaving through the humanitarian corridor itself so that they can try and essentially go through the people who are there to ensure that what they say is the idea that these people might be sheltering within these humanitarian institutions. And again, you've mentioned in the segment already, that's something that we've seen happen time and time again as attacks close to these and, on, and indeed killing plenty of officials from these international organisations are seen, and hence why these arrests have come from within. But what I would say as well on top of that, what it does show to me is some level of desperation, some level to which that there, there is a frustration that the narrative that they've been trying to spin about Al-Shifa hasn't really been sticking from the kind of information that we've seen so far. And we have basically seen already that Shin Bet's entire information and intelligence around their desire for their to find this command and control center underneath Al-Shifa essentially all comes out of the information that they did already have about the fact that they had already built tunnels and bunkers underneath Al-Shifa, presumably for additional hospital capacity. Now, that's not to say that these, those haven't been used for military purposes, but of course, any response on Al-Shifa has to be proportionate. And unless they can give us an evidence that shows some level to which what they have done is proportionate, I will hold my reservations on what they have done so far in terms of the evacuation from Al-Shifa. And so, trying to abduct this, to arrest, sorry, uh, the director of the hospital to get him to essentially confess to there being a command and control centre. It seems to me that's the reason why they would have detained him in such a manner. But we have seen how little evidence that they've given and how the rhetoric has decreased, where it started off, right? It started off as a command and control centre. Then it got downgraded to a command and control node. And actually the command center is in Han Yunis. So we need to go even further south on the exclusion zone and make sure the exclusion zone is even further in terms of where Palestinians in Gaza aren't allowed, which is a very, a very significant change in rhetoric on that. And then from a command and control node, it became, we found some guns and a laptop. And now it's, oh, well, actually, you know, there is underground tunnels in a bunker, but we built it. And when they've shown us the footage, they have shown us some beds and a toilet and a sink, which again, to me, doesn't scream command and control centre in such a way as would necessitate the detention of this particular director of the evidence and the information that we've seen so far. So it sounds to me like they want to be able to use him to further the intelligence they have and not on the basis of the intelligence that they already have and have been using so far. Let's move on to our next story. The number of people killed in Israel's bombardment of Gaza is staggering. 
The health ministry in Gaza has now said that it can no longer count the dead as the Strip's health service has collapsed. Yesterday, its counterpart in the West Bank put the death toll at 13,500, but they too have now stopped reporting figures. So what could possibly even begin to justify Israel's slaughter of so many men, women and children? Well, there's one argument we've heard time and again. Above us, patients, wounded, doctors, all being a human shield. These savage Hamas terrorists are walking around in broad daylight, armed and in uniform, after effectively strapping children to themselves as live body armor, as human shields. And of course, what separates Israel, the United States, and other democracies when it comes to incredibly difficult situations like this is our respect for international law uh, and, as appropriate, uh, the laws of war. Uh, we do everything we can to make sure that in these situations we avoid civilian casualties. That is in direct contrast uh, with uh, Hamas, which uses uh, people as human shields. I want to draw your attention to the US Secretary of State Antony Blinken's words at the end there. What separates Israel from Hamas is they don't use human shields, which, after all, is a war crime. But Blinken's argument isn't supposed to be just a legal one. It's also meant to be a moral one. We're supposed to understand from it that Israel occupies a higher moral ground than Hamas, because Israel doesn't use the bodies of civilians to protect its fighters. Except it's just not true. I'm going to show you some footage that emerged earlier this month, apparently filmed in the occupied West Bank. According to reports, the video shows IDF troops using a bound and blindfolded Palestinian man as a human shield in a refugee camp near Hebron. Now, we can't verify that video, but there's decades of evidence showing that Israel does, in fact, use civilian Palestinians as human shields, and many of them have been children. This 2004 report from Israeli newspaper Haaretz reports that a 13-year-old Palestinian boy was used as a human shield by Israeli border force. The boy, Mohammed Badwan, was strapped to the hood of a jeep by the border police to protect it from stones being thrown by youths. At the time, this photo of Mohammed was taken and shared by the group Rabbis for Human Rights. Rabbi Arik Asherman was a witness to the event and gave this report to Reuters. There was another Palestinian man there and this young boy uh, who was strapped to the screen, which was protecting the uh, windshield of the Jeep from rocks. Uh, he was strapped by one hand to the Jeep. Uh, he was there trying unsuccessfully to hold back the tears, uh, shivering from fear. A year later, Israel made the use of human shields by the IDF illegal. A high court judge ruled that, quote, you cannot exploit the civilian population for the army's military needs and you cannot force them to collaborate. But that ruling seems to have had little effect. In 2010, two Israeli soldiers were found guilty of using human shields in Gaza. Israeli human rights organization Betzalem reports this on the crime. The two soldiers in question had ordered a nine-year-old boy at gunpoint to open a bag they suspected was booby-trapped. Despite the gravity of their conduct, putting a young child at risk, the two were given a three-month conditional sentence and demoted from staff sergeant to private, 
some two years after the incident took place. None of their commanding officers were tried. A favourite human shield technique used by the IDF is the so-called neighbour procedure. Breaking the Silence is an organisation of veteran IDF soldiers working to end the occupation. They publicise the testimonies of soldiers who are deployed in the occupied territories. In this video, Special Forces soldier Itmar Schwartz describes the neighbour procedure. אוקיי okay, אז בין באמת שלל המשימות שקיבלנו אז, אז הרבה מאוד זה היה כניסה לבתים שכניסה לבתים מה שהיה מקובל זה להשתמש בשכן. נוהל שכן בעצם מישהו שהוא מגן אנושי שאנחנו מביאים אותו מאחד הבתים מסביב או מהרחוב והוא נכנס ראשון לבית דופק, דופק על הדלת אנחנו מאחוריו. והוא בעצם משמש לנו המגן האנושי מפני איזשהו טרוריסט שנמצא בפנים. In 2002, 19-year-old Nidal Abu Muksan was shot after the IDF forced him to knock on the door of a suspected Hamas fighter. This Betzalem report is from 2017. This time, the IDF reportedly used a mother of five as a human shield while they attacked mourners at a funeral. Manal Awad was watching from her roof when the Israeli police attacked the funeral. She gave them this testimony. I immediately got off the roof and closed the main door. I barely managed to get into our apartment on the second floor and I could hear glass shattering below and shouts, open up, open up. I went down quickly to open the front door of the building and I saw two male border police officers and one female officer holding crates. One of them ordered me to close the door and go up to the roof with them as he pointed his weapon at me. I went up to the second floor and reached my apartment door where my five young children were. I wanted to go in, but then the officer shouted at me to go up to the roof and stand beside them at the edge that overlooks the road. They started shooting rubber bullets and tear gas canisters at the stone throwers around the house. The youths threw stones at soldiers and border police officers on the street and those on our roof. Some stones landed next to me, and I was terrified that I'd get hurt. I stood there for over 10 minutes and didn't know what to do. One of the officers noticed that I was scared and told me to stand to the side, at the entrance to the roof and not move. I asked to go down and get into my house. I explained that my kids were afraid and that my youngest son was crying. Even though the officer heard him crying, he refused to let me go. I asked both him and the female officer several times, but they refused. I kept standing there for over an hour. The officers fired and the young men threw stones. In 2022, Betzalem reported on another case of Israeli police using human shields. Israeli officers used the family members of a suspected militant, Mahmoud Mareb, as a human shield in Jenin. Betzalem reports that during an exchange of gunfire with the suspect and other Palestinians, the Israeli officers did this. They stood his father, Mohammed, and his sister, Ad, between the military jeeps and the armed Palestinians who were firing at them, leaving the two unprotected and exposed to gunfire. They ordered his mother, Manal, to go into the house, which is at the center of the exchange of fire, in order to persuade Mahmoud to come out and bring them the military robot they'd sent towards the house. And finally, after Manal failed at the task they had assigned her, they ordered his grandmother to go inside too, to try and convince Mahmoud to turn himself in. Mahmoud's sister, Ahed, was just 16 years old at the time. She gave this testimony to charity Defense for Children International Palestine. I had a lot of 
صار اطلاق النار علينا من كل الجهات طبعا هم على الجب الشباب المقاومين ما بيعرفوا اني انا قبايل الجب الجنود كثير خافوا فاتوا على الجب وانا بدي احاول احمي حالي لما كنت احاول احمي حالي انزل راسي ارفع كل ما انزل راسي يحكي لي ارفع هو كان يعني انه حسيت انه هو بيحاول انه يقتلني مش بده يحميني كل ما انزل راسي يحكي لي ارفع اتخبى يرد يحكي لي ارجع اصير احكي معها ويصيحوا علي يقولوا اسكت ارهابي كذاب يعني كثير حكي وظليت قاعده وكل ما اعمل يحكي لي ارفع يعني ما يخلينيش حتى احمي حالي Accusations against the IDF of abusing Palestinian children have continued into 2023. By May this year, long before October the 7th, Israeli forces were accused of using five Palestinian children as human shields. Two of them were toddlers. In a refugee camp near Jericho in the occupied West Bank, Israeli soldiers surrounded the house of the Shalun family, ordering the father Maher to come out. He refused. The Palestine branch of Defense for Children International reports what happened next. While Maher stayed inside, the others complied and went outside. Israeli forces then threatened his sons Nidal, 9, and Karam, 11, in addition to his twin nephews Ahmad and Mohammed, both two years old, and forced them to stand in front of Israeli military vehicles, while Israeli forces fired tear gas canisters, stun grenades, and live ammunition at Palestinians confronting the group of soldiers. The report goes on to say this. One soldier ordered mother Samia to put her two-year-old nephew Muhammad on the ground and raise her hands. Muhammad cried as an Israeli military dog approached him, and as Samia lowered her hands to move him away from the dog, the Israeli soldier put his gun to Muhammad's head, saying, move again and I'll shoot him. Muhammad's twin brother, two-year-old Ahmad, was brought outside by his adult cousin Muhammad. An Israeli soldier instructed Muhammad to lift Ahmed up and hold him in front of the group of Israeli forces. When he tried to lower Ahmed to protect him, an Israeli soldier ordered Muhammad to keep Ahmed raised and threw a stun grenade at his feet. Ahmed cried for the entire two hours. Defense for Children say they have documented at least 30 cases of the IDF using children as human shields since 2001. All except one of those cases have taken place after the 2005 High Court ruling banning the practice. Helena, the idea that Hamas uses human shields has been a central part of the media framing of this war. So why haven't we heard once about Israel using literal human shields, some of whom are children? Well, since the start of the conflict, I've mentioned before, the Hasbara narrative has been to try and emphasise the similarities between Israel and Western nations, this international uh, Western democracy that is the only democracy in the Middle East, for example. That's that's the, the phrase, that, the canal that we keep hearing over and over and over again, is to fit into this, this kind of propaganda being used to paint it as being the outpost of the West and the Middle East. Well, well, that's obviously the case, but in the nice way that they would like it to be painted as. And the way this is done in the West is to paint the conflict as one between uncivilized barbarians and the civilized people of Israel, of Israel. And so if you can then find, and if you can justify and look at these, the difference in the way that we treat the usage of human shields by both sides of this conflict, 
if you can if you can report on the use of it, of Israel engaging in the same kind of tactics as what uh, militants from Hamas is using, that narrative breaks down and it becomes these two powers who are again struggling for what is land and territory, and not indeed this ideological battle between good and evil that is trying to be painted as from four Western audiences to be able to view and. This is what has when you can see the damage and the casualties that's been caused by the IDF in Gaza. The only way that you can ever justify something like that happening is by painting and narrativizing that threat as some kind of unique evil that means that the kind of attacks that we've seen can in any way be justified. Not only have we seen you know, tens of thousands of people killed and pieces of civilian infrastructure being attacked. There's also stories now coming out where Gaza is close to starvation. This pause is happening when it is, given that consequence. But there's been outbreaks of diseases that have been caused by lack of civilian infrastructure on top of the continual blockade, the continual siege, the continual occupation, which has destroyed these people's living standards continually, even outside of this conflict, which again, barely gets reported on in the Western narrative, because it would, under the same kind of lens that we've seen, disrupt this civilized people versus barbarians narrative that is the way in which the Israel will paint its military operation to the West to justify the things that they do. It's also worth noting as well that a lot of these things are being carried out in the West Bank, which has been summarily forgotten by huge amounts of the Western media and Western press since the start of this conflict too, where loads of people have been killed by the IDF already, and we barely hear about it. Because again, that would paint the idea that the IDF are not just these entirely benevolent people who are stuck in a conflict that they were forced into, and are indeed an occupying force that have continually dehumanized and depersonalized people of Palestine, whether they live in Gaza or indeed whether they live in the West Bank. The only time I've heard this being mentioned specifically, uh, it was Michelle Hussein on the BBC asking Elon Levy about attacks in the West Bank. And Levy refused to answer. He didn't even bother addressing the question and tried to deflect somewhere else because these discussions of the kind of uh, war crimes that Israel have engaged in, in much the same way that we see the war crimes being committed by militants from Palestine. Once you see that there's this equivalence here, and once you see what's been happening in the West Bank, the narrative that needs to be painted to make the actions of the IDF justified completely falls apart. And as we've seen, they have continually engaged in what are completely inhuman practices. Um, in terms of their military operations, both before the conflict and afterwards. I think you make a really important point there, which is if you examine the actions of the IDF, you realise that what we're looking at is very different from how it's being presented in the media. So how Israel Palestine is presented in the media is as if you've got two warring neighbours and one of those neighbours is an army and there are debates about the proportionateness of the use of force by that army. And the other neighbor is, you know, terrorists. And so you present it like that and you you obscure two things. One is that you're not talking about two neighbors. You're talking about an illegal occupation and a blockade of a civilian population. Uh, two, you're looking at a state with expansionist ambitions i.e. the state of Israel, wants to expand its settlements in the West Bank. And I think it's quite reasonable 
to suggest that the end game of what's going on in Gaza is ethnic cleansing and perhaps annexation. And three, the actions of the IDF are more consistent with the kind of occupying forces and colonial activities that we've seen throughout history, rather than an army which is abiding by international law and the rules of warfare in a conflict with a neighbor, which is somehow its equal. Um, or if not its equal, um, is it's inferior in moral terms because it's terrorism. It's not, you know, the, the army of a sovereign nation. Um, and so I think that that's why you have to obscure things like the use of human shields. I mean, these are the kinds of abuses which won't be um, unfamiliar to those who've studied the conduct of the British in Ireland, for instance. And I think that this sort of wholesale terrorism of civilian populations, civilian po Palestinian populations, the use of civilian human shields, um, you know, it, it would have made the black and tans very proud. Next story. The far-right party for freedom has emerged as the surprise winners of yesterday's Dutch elections. Geert Wilders could become the country's next prime minister if he's able to persuade other parties to support him. Wilders' party secured 37 seats, beating the left-greens alliance into second. The incumbent VVD, a centre-right party previously led by outgoing Prime Minister Mark Rutte, came third. Franz Timmermans, leader of the left-green alliance, attempted to reassure Dutch minorities of their place in the country after the electoral success of the anti-immigration party for freedom. This is from The Times. He called for a left-wing fist to defend democracy, immigrants and refugees against the hard right. If you meet someone who wanders after tonight, do I still belong here? Then say yes very clearly, he said. It doesn't matter to us where your cradle was. You're welcome in the Netherlands if you flee from war and violence. That will never change for us. What happens next? The Dutch parliament is based on proportional representation, meaning that outright majorities are just not a thing, and horse trading between parties to put together coalition deals are commonplace. This is from The Guardian. In order to form a majority, something the parliamentary website describes as a complex and exciting process, the leaders of political parties appoint a scout to start talks. Within a week of elections, the sitting parliament appoints an informateur to carry out detailed negotiations with the most likely candidates. If there's a potential alliance, the formateur, probably the next prime minister, concludes talks, divvying up cabinet and ministerial posts according to parties' number of seats and policy preferences. They sign a coalition agreement, typically as thick as a Charles Dickens novel, present their plans in parliament and have a vote of confidence. It could be months before we know whether Heert Wilders, the leader of the largest party, will get to head up a government, and his opponents might team up to stop him. This is from the Times. Theoretically, there could be an anti-Wilders coalition led by Timmermans with the VVD, NSC and Liberals, but such a formation would be very unstable on issues from migration to climate change. The outgoing government led by Rutte was a fragile four-way deal that ultimately collapsed due to a combination of policy disagreements and political scandal when thousands of benefits claimants were incorrectly accused of fraud and were made to pay restitution. So who is Heert Wilders, the man who could be the next Prime Minister of the Netherlands? 
Wilders began his political career on the centre-right, but was expelled from the party with whom he initially became an MP and set up the much more right-wing party for freedom. In 2016, he was found guilty by a Dutch court of inciting hatred against immigrants, having led a chant at one of his rallies calling for fewer Moroccans in the country. In 2011, he called for a, quote, towelhead tax on Muslim women who wear the veil. Wilders promised in his 2016 manifesto to ban all mosques in the Netherlands and to ban migrants from Islamic countries. But in his quest to find support from other political parties, Wilders is signalling a willingness to tone down the Islamophobia for the time being. This is what he said last night at a rally celebrating the result with his supporters. I understand very well that parties do not want to be in a government with a party that wants unconstitutional measures, he said. We are not going to talk about mosques, Qurans and Islamic schools. If he is able to form a government, and yes, that's a fairly big if, Wilders has said he'll hold a referendum on whether the Netherlands should leave the EU. But his first priority is, quote, a significant restriction on asylum and immigration. Earlier today, I spoke with Moraine Odenampson, a political scientist and sociologist based at the University of Amsterdam, about last night's results. I began by asking him why the VVD, the party previously headed up by Mark Rutte, did so badly. They've already been uh, blamed for a series of scandals, actually, uh, in the past uh, cabinet, but also in the ones before. Um, and they also had what is now believed to be a, a very terrible strategical uh, decision, and, and that is to have this campaign focused on immigration. Um, so they broke up the coalition government uh, this summer uh, over the issue of immigration, um, and they believed that with a campaign on, on immigration, they would be able uh, to get enough voters to, to overcome uh, actually uh, uh, quite widespread um, widespread anger towards the VVD for, for these past crises. And that strategy has played right into the hands of, of radical right-wing uh, PVV led by Geert Wilders. We can see how strategically campaigning on immigration would benefit a far-right, you know, has been described as xenophobic man like Hurt Wilders, but was his campaign all immigration or did he try to capitalize on wider discontent as well? Yeah, in the Netherlands as well, there is a, a cost of living crisis associated, uh, of course, with the war in Ukraine and, and the high energy prices and, and inflation. Uh, so Wilders has also... Uh, sets some things about that and really capitalized on that, but he always adds a, a kind of ethnic framing to these problems. You know, there is a, a housing crisis in the Netherlands, uh, but according to Wilders, it's, it's mostly the immigrants uh, that are responsible for uh, the lack of affordable housing for people. Uh, and th this is the general analysis uh, of Wilders, is that once we get rid of uh, asylum seekers and immigrants, there will be uh, a lot more money for the Dutch population. So the, the problem is that the Dutch population isn't being treated as favorably as immigrants uh, and expats. Uh, and if we don't spend all, all that money on climate and, and other kind of left-wing hobbies, then 
the Dutch, the, the white Dutch population uh, would be much better. Victor Orban was very quick to tweet his congratulations to Hitwilders. So was Marine Le Pen. Does he have deep connections to other far-right or other nationalist figures in international politics? Or is it just a case of they're happy to see someone stand on a similar kind of platform that they themselves would campaign on? Yeah, Wilders uh, has had, I mean, his his most important connections are actually with uh, the Israeli right wing uh, and with uh, some neoconservatives in the US who have been uh, important funders of uh, his party. Uh, lately, there's also been uh, some uh, rumors uh, of connections with Russia. Uh, but he's a very kind of nationalist, inward-looking uh, person, I would say. Uh, he hasn't really been to the kind of international far-right conferences that we've seen in, in uh, the past years. Uh, and uh, yeah, his message is also like really focused on, on the Netherlands. You mentioned the fact that Wilders takes a lot of political inspiration from Israeli nationalists. Early in his political career, he went on a visit to Israel and said that he was quite inspired by the state of Israel in terms of counter-terrorism. So is there a sort of influence between what he saw in Israel and how he thinks the Dutch state should approach its own minorities, and in particular, the Muslim minority in the Netherlands. This goes uh, way back with Wilders. So, so if you uh, look at his ideological development, uh, you know, he he rebelled against the VVD. He used to be uh, an, an, a politician for the VVD. This is a right-wing liberal party that has been in power for, for a long time now in the Netherlands. Uh, in power, meaning in the Dutch coalition uh, system, that uh, they were the the biggest smaller party, um, and he has developed a kind of a Dutch clash of civilizations uh, theory, uh, and and argues that we are in a kind of epochal struggle against Islam, which he doesn't see as a religion but as a political ideology, and uh, he's very much inspired by. Uh, neoconservative authors writing on Islam uh, and arguing that the kind of fundamentalist interpretation of Islam is the true Islam. Um, and that basically means that Islam is inherently hostile uh, to the West and you need to defeat it uh, rather than accommodating it. And there's, of course, also the, the idea that uh, progressive elites in particular, but more political elites in general, they are kind of the useful idiots by allowing Muslim immigrants to come uh, to Europe and to come to the Netherlands, taking over our country and in the end aiming to turn it into a, an Islamic state. This is one of the, the arguments. Uh, and sometimes this goes down into, uh, yeah, real explicit conspiracy theories about uh, the intention uh, to to have uh, to replace the Dutch population, to replace the white population. Uh, and of course, we've all heard about replacement theory. But Wilders has been one of the, the first to really promote these theories, uh, along with the theorist Badjeor, 
uh, arguing that there is a plot on the European level to replace uh, the original, the native Dutch population and European population with Muslim immigrants. We're looking at a coalition system of government because in the Netherlands you have proportional representation. So what's the likelihood that Wilders will be able to put together a coalition that would enable him to head up a government? Who might be his allies and what are the obstacles? So presently the the idea is that there are two centre-right parties that would be the logical candidates uh, for Wilders to form government with. Uh, one is the aforementioned VVD, the, the right-wing liberal party, the entrepreneur party, or the, the party of business in the Netherlands uh, that has been um, running uh, or being has been the dominant player in the coalitions in the last 13 years under Mark Rutte. Uh, and there is a new Christian Democrat party called NSC, the New Social Contract, led by Peter Omzicht uh, and Together, they would be able to form government. And um, there has been kind of mixed signals coming from these center-right parties uh, saying that they wouldn't want to be in a government with Wilders as prime minister, but at the same time, not closing the door altogether and saying that they need to uh, basically uh, accept the responsibility to rule this country. So uh, it's very likely that they will enter into negotiations about the center-right coalition. There's also uh, another new party, which is the Farmers' Party, which arose uh, in a recent conflict about uh, nitrogen emissions in the Netherlands. We have one of the largest uh, uh, amounts of livestock in the Netherlands, which is a very small country. And now the European Union... um, Regulation is actually saying that this is endangering um, Dutch nature and the quality of of Dutch nature and wildlife. Uh, And the Farmers' Party arose out of a conflict with that. And they are important. Uh, They gained seven seats now, but they have a very uh, big position in the Dutch Senate, um, which uh, was the result of an earlier election this summer. So those are the parties and the likelihood that they will engage with Wilders. Um, I think that they are a bit in a quandary. They um, are, of course, not happy to rule with Wilders. It will probably be a very uh, conflictuous uh, government. There has been commentators that point out that everybody in Wilders' party, most of the people he has, Uh, are not very capable people. He is known uh, to be the only one to make decisions in his party. There's no internal democracy. And most people don't really do all that much while they're in his party and they're not allowed to oppose him. He's a kind of the dictator in his own party. Um, So the question is whether this party could rule with other parties. So uh, there are people predicting that this might turn out to be a very fragile coalition if it will go ahead. And this would be, of course, for the center-right, also one of the major incentives to rule at the PVV is to show that it cannot deliver on its promises and that they instead will be able to. At a rally last night, Wilders indicated that he'd be willing to mellow out on the Islamophobia 
if it would mean that he could find coalition partners. Do you think he's sincere in that, that he really would be willing to leave some of that much more hardcore, full-throated anti-Muslim bigotry at the door if it would get him into government? I would be uh, highly cynical about that or sceptical um, because it's such a central part of the DNA of the party. Uh, the, the PVV is actually known to be almost a, a one-issue party because the Islam has been such a central issue. So uh, he said that he will not uh, take up the unconstitutional elements of his party program um but then there will be other ways you know to um make uh, a difference and then he's already like highlighting that he wants to change the dutch constitution to let it be known that this is a judeo christian country uh he wants to get rid of uh, any kind of anti racism uh, organization um so that, i mean he he will definitely find ways of um, trying as much as possible within the boundaries of or transgressing it in a in, in a very sneaky way or these kind of things. So uh, yeah, it's it's such a central program, central part of his appeal as well. In in the past decades, uh, I don't think it's going to completely disappear. Helena, how important do you think the wider European context is? when you're considering the Dutch election results? So I was looking into the kind of swings that we saw in this Dutch election. And whilst I think that, of course, we should be rightly concerned with the rise and the, the meteoric rise of the, how um, the PVV have done in this election and how what it spells for the kind of rhetoric they're going to see coming from the right, from European parties, both within the EU and outside of the EU, most of the votes, it seems to me, came from other right-wing parties moving rightwards. So actually, when we see, when you mentioned in your segment about Timmermans bringing the Green Left and Labour Party coalition much higher in votes than the previous, there has been at least some gains on the left there. And what we've really seen is the abandonment of the neoliberal establishment party ideology, or indeed the entire party itself, by this move, this coalescing around uh, Wilders' PVV party at the latest election. And this mirrors the trend that we've seen in lots of other right-wing parties across Europe, and indeed the move from those right-wing parties to more further right parties. We've seen the rise of Vox, we've seen the rise of Chago, we've seen the rise of the Sweden Democrats and the FPO. We've seen loads of different right-wing parties rise at the expense of votes from parties who are on the centre-right. And what this tells me, and what I'll move on to the British context in a moment, is that in general, we have seen the broad failure of neoliberalism to continue to hold the hearts and minds of the right-wing uh, body politic in these countries in its heart. So it's been losing its own ground and its belief in the ideology. And right-wingers have been moving far more to kind of cultural ideas in the way in which that they will try and win people's votes over. Because it's very difficult to win these things on economics when we're seeing house prices spiral across Europe, in every, most European countries are seeing problems with house prices at the moment. And what that's been doing, instead of it being some kind of 
forced to change people's minds in favor of kind of more deregulation on house building, for example. What it's done is make people blame immigrants for increasing the supply, for increasing the demand on housing, rather than blaming the government for the, for the lack of supply. And therefore, the blame has to lie with the immigrants who've been allowed in, or the refugees or the asylum seekers who've been to, allowed in, across all of these Western democracies with all of these explicit desires to maintain property rights, which makes house building a lot harder, as we've seen in the UK. And as I've said before, this mirrors what we've seen in the UK as well, where a lot of the country is not happy with neoliberalism. Sorry, That's why, you know, at the last election in 2019, really and truly, you had the the end of austerity coming from Boris Johnson versus a complete rejection of, of uh, neoliberal capitalist economics coming from Jeremy Corbyn. And there had to be an establishment coup to remove both of these people, essentially, and um, both their ideologies from the main parties that they represent. And people continually in opinion polling in the UK don't support neoliberalism either. And the Conservative Party have basically abandoned it in favour of this populist posturing that we're seeing from the Suella Braverman types to become an anti-immigration party, an anti-multiculturalism party, and Labour have become the party of business now, quote unquote. So what we're really seeing broadly is a dissatisfaction with how right-wing parties are managing the economy and a shift of rhetoric towards cultural conservatism. Because when we've seen, when I look at the, the stats for this Dutch election, I think that the left wing is not doing too badly, but the right wing have really collapsed in votes in favour of the far right. Let's go on to our final story. Another day, another Owen Jones related scandal on Twitter. And yet the sweet release of death never comes. This time it's because Gary Lineker, match of the day pundit and crisp aficionado, committed the cardinal sin of sharing an interview that Owen Jones conducted with Raz Sigal, an Israeli associate professor of Holocaust and Genocide Studies at Stockton University. In the interview, Sigal cites international law and historical precedent to argue that what's going on in Gaza is a, quote, textbook genocide. Here's an example of his reasoning. Now, the case of uh, Israel's attack on Gaza is actually very uh, unique. Uh, um, it's actually exceptional, I think, in a number of ways, but it's, but it's unique in the sense of dis discussing it uh, as what I think it is, that is genocide, because the intent is so clearly articulated, right? And it's articulated, it's articulated throughout uh, Israeli uh, media and society and politics now. And anyone who follows Hebrew language sources is exposed to shocking, shocking language by members of parliament, by journalists, on social media, in public spaces, calling to annihilate Gaza, to destroy Gaza, to flatten Gaza, to kill everyone, so on and so forth. But it's articulated since the 7th of October, actually, by people with what's called an international law command authority, right? Or command responsibility. That is state leaders, members of the war cabinet um, and senior army officers. And here we have dozens, dozens of pieces of evidence so far uh, of people with command authority. And we can, you know, uh, uh, um, we can name a few key examples in a second. Uh, but I want to just emphasize also that the issue of intent here, uh, uh, there's two additional things that are important to note. One is that it also comes in the Israeli case with a lot of dehumanizing language, right? Uh, and we'll refer to that. So there is intent to destroy, but the intent to destroy here is also accompanied with explicit dehumanizing language. 
And then there is a, a language that actually should uh, um, get us to think about historical cases of genocide. I'm referring specifically to, for example, ideas about deporting all the uh, Palestinians in Gaza to the desert, right? Uh, because we know that deserts actually have been used uh, in genocides historically in the 20th century, specifically as weapons of genocide. Now, you can agree or disagree with that, but it's undeniably a sober and well-researched bit of thinking from a scholar who is laying out their reasoning in detail. No wonder then that Gary Lineker thought it was a valuable resource to share with his 8.9 million followers on Twitter. Q, of course, right-wing meltdown. This was Jake Wallace-Simons, editor of the Jewish Chronicle on Twitter. BBC, we've really been undermining our own credibility in recent weeks. Gary Lineker, hold my beer. Not to be outdone, Michael Deacon slammed Gary Lineker in the Telegraph. Gary Lineker is making an utter fool of himself over Israel. The BBC star's latest endorsements prove that he must stop tweeting about current affairs once and for all. And here's the ever sober and restrained Brendan O'Neill writing for Spiked Online after having combed through Gary Lineker's Twitter feed for any mention of Israel prior to his tweet of Owen Jones's video. Now Mr Lineker is not so quiet. Now he invites his millions of followers to watch a prof accuse Israel of genocide. So this is the virtue of the virtue signalers. When racist terrorists carry out the worst act of anti-Semitic slaughter of modern times, they go dumb. When the victim of that racist slaughter dares respond, they pipe up. The inversion of morality taking place here is mind-bending. Hamas is a genuinely genocidal terror movement that frequently gives voice to its apocalyptic racial animus for the Jews and its desire to erase Israel. And yet it is Israel's war against Hamas that is branded genocidal. The idea that hunting genocidal terrorists is genocide is an act of despicable doublethink. Now, it's not the hunting of Hamas that people are calling genocidal. It's the death toll of civilians, thousands of children killed by airstrikes, those still trapped under the rubble, and all of the civilian infrastructure that's been targeted, from bakeries to hospitals to the downing of power lines. These are all things which indicate an indiscriminate attack. And now when it comes to genocide, the language of genocide is coming from people with command responsibilities. It's coming from the war cabinet. It's coming from IDF leaders. They're calling to erase Gaza, to flatten Gaza, to drive the Palestinians out of the enclave and into neighboring countries. Those are calls for genocide and for ethnic cleansing. It's not the idea that there's a war going on between combatants that has people upset. The Times report that BBC staff internally were angered by Lineker sharing the link to the interview with Raz Segal. They write, The post caused dismay among BBC staff. One raised concerns that it would be bloody awful for any Jewish colleagues that have to work with Lineker. It's pretty shit for any Jew having to work with quite a few folk here right now, they added. Lineker's post prompted an internal debate about whether he had breached the BBC's social media guidelines, which were overhauled after his criticism of Suella Braverman, in which he compared the government's immigration policy to 1930s Germany. The guidelines say that all staff should respect high standards of civility and refrain from attacking political parties or politicians. One BBC journalist said that they believed Lineker had breached the guidelines. 
He's not respecting Jewish colleagues and amplifying really offensive accusations of genocide, they said. The BBC code is about not doing things that are offensive to others, which this clearly is. People feel it's absolutely disgraceful and the director general needs to deal with it. Now, this might sound a bit weird, but I actually have more respect for Brendan O'Neill here than the unnamed BBC staff quoted by The Times. Because O'Neill, to his credit, is at least raising political objections. Now, they're ones that I disagree with wholeheartedly, and I disagree with them because it frames what Israel is doing in Gaza as self-defense. But it is at least within the realms of debate. You have one point of view, I have another point of view. What's happening in the Times article is an attempt to shut down any speech, no matter how sober, no matter how well-researched, that's critical of Israel by claiming that it's anti-Semitic. And look how comically low the threshold is. It's disrespectful to Jewish BBC staff. And note here how Jewish is used as a synonym with pro-Israel. To merely say that it's worth watching an interview with an Israeli historian calling out the government's actions as genocidal. Now, that would be like if I said that I felt uncomfortable as a Muslim member of staff because one of my Navarra media colleagues had shared an article condemning Saudi Arabia for human rights abuses and demanding they get disciplined for it. It's cheap, it's cynical, and it tries to shortcut winning an argument by simply saying that it shouldn't be had at all. You can't say that simply because someone could find something offensive, that it's a breach of impartiality and it's in itself racist. People may get offended. That doesn't mean that the objection is in itself reasonable. You have to look at the content. And the content here was an Israeli historian saying, according to his interpretation of law and his interpretation of historical precedent, that what's going in Gaza is a textbook case of genocide. And the content of Gary Lineker's tweet, all it said is that watching the video was worth 13 minutes of your time and you could make up your own mind. Now, if you find that offensive, in my personal view, you got to get a grip. Helena, when I was looking at how this story played out, I wondered if the unspoken bit here is that Gary Lineker treated Owen Jones, who's very obviously on the left, as though he's a legitimate participant in the public sphere. Do you think that's got something to do with the brouhaha? So every time I click my fingers, we lose another one of the Liberal commentariat to the unfortunate affliction known as Owen Jones derangement syndrome. You too can join Navarra Media for as little as £1 a month to help us find a cure for Owen Jones derangement syndrome, allow these people to have normal takes on these issues without losing their goddamn minds on Twitter. Now, this has been quite a week for Owen Jones. He's been through the absolute ringer with the way in which people have been dealing with his comments uh, over the current Israel-Palestine conflict. And obviously, of course, you mentioned that this is actually an Israeli historian, a, a, a scholar of genocide studies and the Holocaust in specific. If Gary Lineker was just sharing this person expressing their opinions in out of the context of Owen Jones, there would no, no, no one at all would have been having any of the reaction they've had right now. But the fact that Owen Jones did the tweet and is in on screen, despite the fact he says nothing throughout all 13 minutes of that, because it's being done by an actual academic scholar, like they, that's the only reason why they're getting mad about this, the fact that Owen Jones is included in it at all. Now, this isn't the only time this week where Owen Jones has been attacked for something that he's put out on the internet about 
the Israel-Palestine conflict. So I'm just going to go over a few of the things that people have got mad about Owen Jones on Twitter about. The first one was when a Taliban parody account was in his replies. People were trying to claim that he was somehow being agreed with by the Taliban. He retweeted somebody else, quote, tweeting Der Spiegel, saying that the kind of anti-Semitism we're seeing is something that we've never seen before. And as an Israeli, as a, as a Jewish person saying, you, you a German magazine saying we've never seen any type of this anti-Semitism before. Are you sure about that? And then apparently Owen Jones retweeting him was somehow saying that this wasn't anti-Semitism and not indeed what he was actually saying was the, the opinion that was, was being retweeted there was the fact that Yes, there's been plenty of anti-Semitism in Germany. It was the hotbed of anti-Semitism for one specific instant uh, in the last century. Then after that, he tweeted out a video of Al-Shifa Hospital, where the security footage showed members of the Hamas militant groups bringing in hostages for treatment. And people then thought that he was saying that Hamas was some humanitarian institution just looking after people because that's their duty and not indeed picking up on the fact, a literal Oxford professor, no less, couldn't pick up on the fact that maybe the Hamas would not have any use for the hostages if they died, right? The leverage kind of disappears there. So they thought that Owen Jones was being positive about Hamas and not giving some kind of kind of neutral discussion on the reason as to why there would be hostages being treated in Al-Shifa. And then at the most surreal point of all of this, um, an ex-Labour MP quotes tweeted Owen Jones saying to Dan Hodges that maybe it's bad when children die, then added the Guardian saying that Owen Jones should be fired. This man breaks people's brains. None of the takes that he's given here are in any way objectionable. Yeah, how dare Owen Jones care about dead children? What a monster, right? How dare he bring on an Israeli academic to talk about what, to anybody who has eyes and who can articulate themselves, who can look at evidence in front of them and see that under any definition, what Israel is doing is at least ethnic cleansing, if not a genocide. And then they just lose their minds because Owen Jones is doing it. Why they lose their minds? Is it because he still radiates twin energy at age 39? I have no idea. That could be, other than that, the only other explanation, the more likely one probably, is that they managed to browbeat anybody who represents the genuine left out of political discourse, apart from Owen Jones. He's the only one who's escaped their ire. And he is a constant thorn in their side, providing a different analysis than their received wisdom within the liberal commentariat. One last comment I would make, though, about that spiked article by Brendan O'Neill. You'd think somebody writing in an online journal that used to be called Living Marxism might want to take a more materialist analysis of the situation in Israel and Palestine, and that maybe it's very difficult to equivocate between an established country with one of the most advanced militaries in the Middle East carrying out an occupation for 75 years and a blockade who brutalizes many innocent people with complete impunity might be not indeed equivocal, whilst the actions of October the 7th by Hamas and PIJ are utterly indefensible. The idea that somehow that means that you therefore can't call out Israel for engaging in far worse materially than what Hamas and PIJ did on October 7th over the course of the last 75 years seems a bit of a misstep considering the roots of the publication that Brendan O'Neill is writing in there. Just a thought. I was really disappointed to see so many comments in the YouTube chat making fun of Owen Jones' derangement syndrome. It's a real disease, it's very serious, and there's no known cure. But we at Navarra Media are carrying out tireless research to find a vaccine. And if you want to support that crucial work, 
go to navaramedia.com slash support and become a supporter. We ask for an average of one hour of your wage per month or as much as you can afford. And maybe, maybe one day together, we can find a cure for liberal commentary at brain rot. Thanks, Helena, for joining me tonight and raising awareness of this terrible affliction. No worries. It's been a pleasure as always. Thank you for having me. And thanks everyone for watching this evening. Come back tomorrow, same time, same place. This has been Navara Media. You've been watching Navara Live. Good night. This broadcast is brought to you by Navara Media. Go to navaramedia.com slash support.